Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, August 1st, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. President Obama spoke at a news conference today. Not too much news, but because the president said it, it's sort of news. Like when he criticized Republicans for fecklessness and not giving him enough money in the border bill. And he defended John Kerry for trying to put out essentially, you know, half dozen or more international fires. Kerry's working hard. This may be news. Now that Congress is away, he says he may intercede on the issue of the border. He is a president who has taken executive action before. In fact, it's gotten him sued. But the thing that stood out for a lot of people, for me, wasn't a headline per se. It was a phrase. The subject was the CIA's rendition, detention, and interrogation report, the RDI report. There's a big fight over how much should be declassified. Obama wants most of it declassified. The CIA doesn't. We'll see what the Senate does. But here is how he addressed the issue of what the United States did in the wake of 9-11. We tortured some folks. We tortured some folks. Now, if this was George W. Bush, he would be pilloried. Well, actually, actually, maybe he'd be lauded because even though he would use the folksy folks, for once, he wouldn't be evading the fact that the United States tortures. Remember, Cheney and Bush would always construct it as if the United States is doing it, it's not torture. Uh huh. I don't think that the president is being cavalier here. He's going to get a lot of flack for this. The AP literally moved an item that just said President Obama says we tortured folks. But what I think he's trying to do is to be communicative and not to be incendiary. I mean, this is such a sensitive area. He does not want to be pounding the podium. He specifically didn't say we sold out our values. He specifically didn't say America is not the America I knew. He was trying to be calm. This is the no drama Obama thing. And sometimes it comes out in a locution like we tortured some folks. But what he's trying to do is to communicate that accountability is good. And let's not turn this into another huge political firefight. We tortured some folks. Probably not the best way to put it, but maybe the best way to begin to grapple with it. Now, speaking of locutions and tortured locutions or otherwise, we'll be speaking of speaking on the show. In the spiel, we will talk about some commonly misused words. But in an interview before the spiel, we will ponder if there really is such a thing as a commonly misused word. I say yes. I literally say yes. And my guest says, well, by literally, you might mean figuratively. Therefore, you mean no. I think I am characterizing his position fairly. But before we get to all these words about words, let's hear some words about symbols, specifically flags. Big announcement. Dateline. Sioux Falls. 
We need a better fanfare than that because we have an announcement, a gist first. This is something we've talked about before. The city of Sioux Falls, a city I love, has an, a committee, a committee that was established to find a suitable flying banner for the city of Sioux Falls. There were 12 finalists. We asked you guys to help vote on those finalists. Many Sioux Fallsians have voted, and now there is a winner. There is a banner that is more than suitable. That is, in fact, quite excellent for the city of Sioux Falls. And joining me now is the chair of that committee, Hugh Weber. Hello, Hugh. Hello, good afternoon. And how should I pronounce the uh, committee to establish a suitable flying banner for the city of Sioux Falls? This is, this is critical. You need to take on your most South Dakotan accent and affectation and say, and, and joining you as a member of the selection committee is really just the top name in flag expertise that I know of in North America, a member of NAVA. He's an editor of The Raven. Do I have to tell you these are the flag organizations? That's a flag magazine. He's the author of Good Flag, Bad Flag. Ted Kay is also with us. Hello, Ted. Thank you. All right. So, Hugh, tell us what won. What is the most suitable of these banners in Sioux Falls? After almost 3,000 votes and uh, five expert judges, including people like Ted, designer Kate Bingman-Burt from Portland, and my five-year-old daughter, I believe this is one that you described as ascending jagged line with yellow starburst uh, is the flag. A field to the upper side of blue, a field to the southern side of red, and a beautiful yellow, yellow starburst as well. And the starburst, if I'm not mistaken, very much echoes a design on the South Dakotan state flag. Is that right? It does. The, the, the symbols in this flag are, are wonderful in that that uh, echoes the seal that is on our flag, but without all of the unnecessary lettering and uh, multiple naming of, of, of the state. And the, uh, the ascending line uh, very much uh, harkens to the, the falls that are uh, where our name derives from and why folks settled here in the first place. Yeah, and we should note it did beat Ascending Squiggle Line with no Starburst. But as soon as I saw the one with the Starburst, I knew no Starburst was dead. Ted, what makes this flag a good flag? It follows the five basic principles of flag design. It's simple. It uses meaningful symbolism. It uses two to three basic colors. It's actually four, but close. No lettering and no seals. And it's very distinctive. Now, Ted, there is, the flag is red, almost half red. And with country flags, red invariably means the blood that was shed. On city flags and state flags, I hope that's not usually the case. Well, I'm certain that's not the case in Sioux Falls, because, of course, it does represent the granite uh, underlying Sioux Falls. But also, red does not always represent blood or bloodshed. It is just a very distinctive color that is very popular because it's recognizable at a distance. And it's, uh, uh, for the human eye, red is very easily identified. Yeah. Does this flag remind you of any other flags that are out there? No, it's very, very distinctive. The key for me is that Sioux Falls, its name is Sioux Falls, and something on the flag ought to represent either Sioux or Falls. And in this case, it represents the falls in Sioux Falls, so it's very evocative flag. When I see the lighter blue on it, which represents, I think, the uh, or it recalls the South Dakota state flag, and that sun that matches the outline of the seal on the South Dakota state flag, it's a stunning design that does clearly represent Sioux Falls. Hugh, what can you tell us about 
the designer of this flag. We know little about this designer. And from what we can tell based on attempts to reach him by email as, as we recognize that he was going to be not only the, the finalists by, by overall judging, but also overwhelmingly the people's choice. We, we had nearly 3,000 votes. It appears that he is a university student. By last measure, through our Google sleuthing, he is uh, in uh, South Africa. You said you tried to reach him by email. I was going to suggest just raise the banner high and he will surely see it. But no, not from <laughs> South Africa. Are you, have you gotten assurances that this is going to be incorporated into uh, municipal buildings? Is it going to be ad- adopted? Has the mayor signed on to that this flag is going to be official and prominently displayed? So this is, uh, from the beginning, we had approached this as an unofficial effort, really as an exercise to engage the, the creative slice of our community in something civic. But as the energy is built uh, with presence on uh, local media, but also uh, podcasts like yours and other articles on blogs throughout the, throughout the world, there has been an elevation of it. And we've had some real strong support come from past mayors and, and members of the city council that want to see it accelerated in that way. So uh, we will be taking them at the end of the, the month, at the end of the gallery showing to the city council to share with them the top six. Uh, with with uh, all of the numbers that back up and all of the wisdom from Ted and others that back up this as a, a worthy choice. So we'll, we'll have to see. The saga continues. Ted, now that Sioux Falls has a fine city banner and other cities have proud banners, does the task turn to convincing Pocatello to change its flag? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're mentioning Pocatello because... Our group uh, 10 years ago did an Internet-based survey asking people to rate the design qualities of 150 American city flags, and Pocatello's flag came in last. There apparently is an effort in Pocatello to update that flag. Pocatello needs to do the same thing that Hugh is doing, and that is get buy-in from the local political body, the city council uh, or its equivalent, that yes, indeed, it will change the flag or adopt a flag if a good design is presented. And he was doing the, the, the good work to make sure that that happens. Interestingly, we followed uh, uh, the, the Internet-based survey, followed the book that we published, American City Flags, that had the flags of 150 American cities that represented at least two cities in each state, the state capital, and the 100 largest cities in the country, and merging those lists that came to 150, there were only three cities that did not have flags, Hilo, Hawaii, Fargo, North Dakota, and Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And so we substituted the next city down the list for those. So Rapid City made the book because Sioux Falls was not uh, vexiliferous, as we say, did not have a flag. If it were in the group of 150 flags that had been evaluated 10 years ago, I would guess it would have finished in the top 10 or 20 flags. That's awesome. So it is it is vexillicious. And we should, by the way, describe the Pocatello flag. If your five points were a few colors and easily remembered and no writing, it violates all the rules. Pocatello's flag is actually the logo of the Chamber of Commerce. And it uh, uh, not only... Uh, has a trademark symbol, but also a copyright symbol on the flag. It says, it's mostly letters that say, proud to be Pocatello, mm-hmm. with a an purple image of mountains above it. The images of the mountains would be great on a flag without all the writing. But uh, Pocatello took the 
the short way out and just slapped a logo on their flag and said that was the flag. It might as well have a Q scan or an URL on the thing. It <laughs> is not pleasing to the eye. Well, I just want to uh, congratulate Hugh. You've done a great job. Um, as you've heard that if this really gains steam, you're now in the top 15 percent of flags. It's, it's an amazing job that you've done, Hugh. And thank you, Ted Kay, for your expertise and your championing of this great cause. And let us just say, Fargo, North Dakota, you're on notice. I like your word, vexillicious. It this is. is a vexillicious flag. It's vexillicious. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Amon Shea is the author of Bad English, A History of Linguistic Aggravation. He is, as he describes himself, spectacularly incompetent, so we thought we must have him in. (laughs) Hello, Amon. Hi, how are you? So as a descriptivist and not a prescriptivist, as someone who notes these things but doesn't decry these things, are there still phrases that feel wrong to your ear? Um, No. None? Uh, No, there are not. What feels wrong to my ear is when somebody gets up on their high horse and says, that's not a word. When something is obviously a word, because all you need to do is say it and have it mean something and have it be widely understood. And it's, it's a word. It's a little bit like saying that's not a car when something is about to run you over. It's really wishful thinking. It exists. It's out there. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> right. Actually, the Highway Transportation Board classifies it as a truck, a light truck that <laughs> right, you got right. hit by. What? Right. Doesn't help. My pelvis is still broken. Um, okay. So forgot, forget about irritation. What about cliches? What about saying... You know, you could have done better than that. What about you're grading an essay or you're talking to uh, a youngster, a child, and maybe you want to give them advice to improve their communication ability? Okay, that's an excellent point. My feeling is that rather than condemning people for their language, gotcha. we should be applauding them for using language. Maybe well, not with an ovation. Right, maybe not with an ovation, of course. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it depends. If they make a small improvement in language, we can give them a little ovation, a little um, pitter-patter of clapping. So an ovation was a golf clap. Interesting. Really, it was. Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, it was a, an okay triumph, but not a, a really great triumph. Um, so, But I think we should be applauding uh, inventive use of language. And one of the things that is inventive about language is changing the way that language is used, changing the things that words mean. Uh, Semantic drift is inventive. Using like in a different way can be inventive. You may not like the way that like comes up so frequently in the speech of particularly young people, but it's not really different than a lot of other things that we're totally comfortable with. I think one of the reasons why it comes up so frequently is because we all wear our linguistic education on our sleeves. Or so it seems. Uh, if we're having a conversation and you say something is very unique, were I to be a punctilious nitpicker, I would kind of mark it off my little black book and hold it against you. However, so you, you've betrayed something about your linguistic choices. You have mm-hmm. told me nothing about your knowledge of physics, history, geometry, chemistry, or really anything else. But you have told me something about how you use language. And if I want to be a petty sort of person, and so many of us do, I can then hold that against you. So some of these sins, I think are either fine or understandable, and I totally get, like, say, disinterested and uninterested. It does seem that it's kind of random which prefix would mean what, right? Especially since when they first entered the language, each one meant the opposite. Right. changed. So that seems, if someone says disinterested, I say, I totally understand. That's no problem. But when someone uses literally wrong, I think it's in a slightly different category. Although you don't. In fact, they're both in the same chapter in your book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the issue with literally is not that it's right or wrong. If you want to dislike it, you can go ahead. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm not trying to take that that 
exquisite pleasure away from anybody. If you want to kind of pull that warm blanket of contempt over you every night when you go to sleep, knowing full well that you use literal in a very literal fashion, be my guest. Uh, where I take exception is when people then say that does not mean something. What literal means is it means what people choose it to mean. That is how language works. So if you want to say uh, that that is not an existing definition, well, you're going against Mark Twain, who used it freely. You're going against Nabokov, who used it in a number of books in his writing. You're going against hundreds, if not thousands, of respected writers of the English language. You may not like it, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Going against Nabokov is something that I could deal with, but not going against Mark Twain. <laughs> that does do my heart poor. And then you have some words which don't mean the thing they mean. But you know what? Thank God. I think decimated is in this category. The thing we've come to make it mean is much more useful for oh, our absolutely. language. Yeah. How often, Thank God it changed. Right. How often have you really had need to describe one out of every ten people being punished or killed. Uh, very infrequently, but how often do you have need to describe great widespread slaughter? Of course, it's a very useful word. And then as Ambrose Bierce, who's a wonderful curmudgeonly and frequently wrong commentator on language, he made the case that ovation should similarly be preserved because ovation was properly in Latin. It meant to a minor triumph, like the, the, the bronze medal of applause, <laughs> really? basically. Uh, he made the point that you should never use ovation to describe a standing ovation because it's just, it's just a contradiction yeah, in terms. A standing, a triumphant bronze medal. Right. Exactly. So if we insist on decimate holding on to this outdated and very little needed uh, Roman military definition, why don't we do the same for ovation? It's, 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 it's a kind of nice inconsistency we hold on to with so much of language. I like that. No, I think uh, one that comes up often that I've said here, very unique. It's almost a quirk that very unique doesn't work because we want to modify that with an adverb. We want to modify adjectives with adverbs. And so some that would work are truly unique. Truly unique works perfectly, right. but very unique raises hackles. Even quite unique works well. And it's just a, a real uh, almost asterisk type quirk that disqualifies very unique if you're going to be a persnickety curmudgeon. Yeah, the, the problem with unique that so many people have is that they want it to be what's called an absolute adjective, which mm -hmm. is an adjective that permits no state of variation. It's fine if you want to stick with that, but if you go back and you look through just recent history, say going back to the 1850s, there have been hundreds of words that were classified as absolute adjectives. Um, and so it's just kind of luck of the draw that unique has been held up as the shining example of something that we, we cannot lose the specificity of unique. Well, why not? We've lost the specificity of perfect in the United States Constitution, the preamble, the first line, in order to create a more perfect union. Uh, right. Nobody really gets their knickers in a twist about that. Uh, supreme, people talk about the most supreme being, things like this. But if you go back and you look at the other ones, it was round, flat, true, untrue, just, unjust, green, blue. All these words were at one point in time considered to be absolute, things you cannot modify by at least some of the grammar gods. Was abs Do we know that absolute green was which shade of green? Well, I guess that's the whole point. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't like Captain of Vault in France? I have no idea. Now, you have 221 words that were once frowned upon. You mentioned a few of them, dilapidate and ovation. What are some other ones well, that we Zoom, wouldn't even know? Zoom should never be used, according to certain usage guides, to refer to any movement that is not going straight up because it's an aviation term. Um, pants should never be used because they are simply vulgar. Pantaloons are preferred. Never say vest. Say waistcoat. 
Um, never say date. Say you have an engagement. Never say phone because such abbreviations are vulgar. Same thing with auto. Never say mansion, according to Emily Post in 1945. Say instead big house. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or you can get arrested and sent to the mansion. <laughs> right. uh, so, I mean, this is just a slight taste of, I mean, there are many, many more hundreds of these. And it is quite impossible to speak any form of English today that does not use some of these words that were at one point in time really frowned upon. Amon Shea, author of Bad English, A History of Linguistic Aggravation. Thank you, Amon. Thank you. So now the spiel. I am on board with much of what Ammon was saying there. Still, still, if words only mean what you think they should mean or what they feel like to you when you're saying them, I think we got some problems. Take the case of Tim Torkeldson, specifically Torkeldson versus Woodger. Torkeldson was the teacher, the language teacher in Utah, who was teaching his class about homophones. You know, words that sound alike but are either spelled differently or not, but have different meanings. Homophones. His employer, Mr. Clark Woodger, did not like this talk of homophones, fired the guy, told Torkelson, quote, now our school is going to be associated with homosexuality. Not a triumph of understanding what words actually mean. Homophones sound the same but mean different things. There is some debate about if the spelling needs to be the same or different, but this is what you need to know. They don't have anything to do with homosexuality. Of course they could. Let's think of the following sentence that demonstrates the power of homophones. Here we go. I can't bear a bear bear bearing down on BJ and the bear, so bear right bear right there, or be laid bare by bears. Now what this means is... The thought of an unclothed grizzly, a bear bear, attacking, bearing down, on characters from a popular TV show from the 70s, BJ and the Bear, prompts me to advise the chimpanzee member of said tandem to take the wheel, bear right bear, or else be exposed by a forest animal, laid bare by the bear. And if you want to change one of these grizzlies or Kodiaks to a large bearded gay man, that works too. Now let's take another word that has maybe been abused for rhetorical reasons. Myth. Gonna dispel a myth. Myth busters. So it seems to me that myths have two essential elements. The first element is that a myth is not true. It can't be true. Don't tell Zeus, but a myth is not true. And the other element is people must believe it's true. Because something that's not true that no one believes isn't really a myth, right? Myths are religions. So let me now introduce you to a section of the Washington Post. They've been doing this for years and years and years. Five myths about, you know, they describe it as our popular feature, five myths about. And the first time I noticed this section and really said, what was five myths about Hamas? This was a couple of weeks ago. Myth number one about Hamas. Hamas poses no meaningful threat to Israel. This is a myth. This is a myth that Hamas poses no meaningful threat to Israel? People think that this terrorist group firing rockets poses no meaningful threat to Israel? And then I've been reading a bunch of the other Washington Post myths, and I've come to conclude that they have a myth conception about what myths mean. Here's a myth about Brown v. Board of Education, myth three. 
school segregation was a problem only for African-Americans in the South. I I guess maybe a 23-year-old doesn't realize or remember what happened with, say, the Boston busing controversy. But just because you're ignorant doesn't mean something's a myth. Here are five myths about the Gaza crisis. Myth one, John Kerry's failed peace process led to the crisis. People believe this? People are blaming Kerry? I just don't see the militants yelling anti-Kerry slogans left and right. Myth number two, the Gaza crisis has a military solution. Again, I could attack this from two ways. Taken to the extreme, sure, nuclear bombs, everything has a military solution, but I don't really think there are a lot of people going around saying one side's going to solve this thing with superior firepower. And then myth number five, remember there are only five myths, so we've documented that 60% of these myths raise an eyebrow. Myth five is Washington can and should end this crisis. Who believes that? I don't know. All right, so all of those myths fall into the category of things that people don't really believe, but there are also things that aren't myths because they're not true. The Washington Post had five myths about the Triple Crown, you know, the horse races, and they say, a horse that wins the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness is a deserving betting favorite to win the Belmont. And then they chronicle, as they should, that most horses who win the first two legs of the Triple Crown do not go on to win the Belmont. But that doesn't mean that that horse shouldn't be a favorite. Every race has a favorite, so what horse are you going to pick to be the favorite? That's not a myth that the horse that won the first two races shouldn't be the favorite. The myth is that the horse that won the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness will win the Belmont. That's not really a myth, but it's a better way to get at what you're asking for. Among the other myths that aren't myths because they're probably not true, among five myths about Chris Christie, number three, he's unhealthy. Five myths about electing a new pope. Now, remember, this came before the pope was elected. Myth number two was the next pope is likely to be African or Latin American. Was it a myth? The guy's from Argentina. Don't expect big surprises. I think this pope has pretty much surprised. Here's a myth about Putin. Remember, this was before Crimea. This was before anything. Three, Putin wants to recreate the Soviet Union. That's a myth. And the myth layer out, who's just a guy who writes an op-ed piece, but they make him do it in myth form. He lays out that Putin knows the leaders of neighboring countries aren't going to hand over their sovereignty anytime soon, which is actually what exactly happened in Crimea. He also realizes that the relatively affluent Russians don't like forking over subsidies. Actually, they've loved absorbing these territories. And then it quotes Putin as saying, whoever does not miss the Soviet Union has no heart. Whoever wants it back has no brain. Not a myth. But the last one, and this got into real meta-myth territory, was five myths about Easter. And they asked James Martin, a Jesuit priest and the editor-at-large of America Magazine, which I love, and author of the new book, Jesus a Pilgrimage, to lay out the five myths about Easter. Now, I'm not going to go all Christopher Hitchens on you guys, but let's just say that Myths are maybe a less kind way of uh, saying the word religion. So the number one myth about Easter was Jesus didn't literally rise from the dead. This is not playing fair. You can't say that that's a myth. You can't say not believing my myth is a myth. Sorry, folks, that's not how it's done. Or maybe it is. You know, this is the deal with words. They could mean anything. They could mean nothing. I guess all that myth means now is things that I want to argue against. Fine. Great for rhetoric. Not exactly elevating our collective intelligence.
And that is it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, thought she'd rented out a room, but the guy flaked, and now she's getting criticized for failure to secure the border. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is also working on a documentary. It's about the easily sunburned, and it's called Beyond the Pale. You can subscribe on iTunes or listen in SoundCloud. And SoundCloud, by the way, is where the word thunder comes from. It's the Chippewa word literally meaning SoundCloud. Now you know that. And I just made that up. Sign up for daily email at slate.com slash gist email. Our Twitter feed is slate gist. We are on facebook.com slash slate gist. By the way, after we posted all the flags of Sioux Falls on Facebook and asked you guys to weigh in, you did weigh in. And Hugh Weber, who ran the contest in Sioux Falls, noticed. Shortly after your podcast, we saw a dramatic spike in Pompadour Penguin among the votes. Oh, so, yeah, Pompadour uh, Penguin. Uh, and, and references throughout uh, comments and commentary uh, after after your vote. So the, the just uh, reach and passion uh, clearly influenced some of that uh, that movement. I felt bad making fun of Tonchard Monk bending forward when I found out it had been designed <laughs> by a five-year-old. <laughs> Email the gist at slate.com. I once invited all the barbers who've ever cut me while shaving to a Sweeney Todd-themed party, and you'll never guess what was in the meat pies I served. (laughs) I guess you could say I got my knickers in a twist. Listen, I really want to apologize. I've done two credits this week with a lot of terrible puns. You've indulged me, and I sincerely therefore mean it when I say thanks for listening.